0: Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott.
1: I've been discussing the failure of the argument that attempts to show that morality is relative and not objective. I repeat the form of the argument in case you have forgotten how it goes. Premise one, the diversity thesis. The notions of right and wrong differ from person to person and culture to culture. Premise two, the dependency thesis. Morality depends on human nature. The human condition human culture, or some combination of the three. Conclusion, therefore, morality should differ from person to person and culture to culture. I've shown that this argument commits what is called the is-ought fallacy. Therefore, that fact alone refutes the argument for relativity of morals. But in the last episode, I continued my refutation of that argument by claiming that premise one is overstated. Rather than using our five physical senses to discover moral truths, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, that the work of the law is written on our hearts. We discover moral truths from a source of what humans are as a creation of God. We were made in the image of God and we all have a conscience that senses right and wrong unless of course we suppress that truth. Still the relativist might ask how can you say that what the Nazis did in the Holocaust was wrong when they thought they were right or how were the soldiers wrong when they ordered victims into the gas chambers When they were merely following orders given by their superiors. My response is we are all responsible for our actions, regardless of what we may claim we are thinking. We can claim anything as an excuse. Premise one is actually false. It claims that all moral truths are relative, therefore, there are no objective moral truths. From William Lane Craig's moral argument, this means there is no God. But I've given several proofs that God does exist. Premise one, therefore, leads to a false conclusion and consequently is false itself. The relativist affirms in premise two that morality depends possibly on three sources. One, human nature, two, the human condition, or three, human culture, or some combination of the three. But premise two causes problems for the relativist. Why? Because relativism and atheism go together like hand in glove. And these three sources, without God, violate the clear teaching of scripture. Relativists think these three sources offer both positive and beneficial effects for moral relativity. But in truth, they are simply negative and deleterious. The Apostle Paul, author of the epistle to the Ephesians, addresses in the passage chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, all three sources suggested by premise 2, and explains the devastating effect that they have if people are not in Christ and have not experienced the salvation that God gives by grace. Paul writes, And you, God, made alive who are dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, in whom also we all conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Paul is not giving us a portrait of some particularly Decadent or degraded segment of society, or even of the extremely paganistic civilization of his day. No, this is the biblical diagnosis of all fallen human beings in fallen society everywhere at all times. In his book, The Message of Ephesians, John Stott writes, True. Paul begins with an emphatic U indicating in the first place his Gentile readers in Asia Minor. But he quickly goes on to write in verse 3a that we all once lived in the same way thus adding himself and his fellow Jews and he concludes with a reference to the rest of mankind verse 3b. Here, then, is the Apostle's estimate of every man without God, of the universal condition. Paul begins this passage with the phrase, And you, God made alive. It will be difficult to understand this phrase unless you consider the context from chapter 1 of Ephesians. Paul is writing to believers in Christ but they are merely at the beginning of their walk with Christ. They are, so to speak, babes in Christ. He wants them to grasp something of the magnitude, the greatness, and the majesty of this wonderful salvation they are experiencing. And since they are surrounded by paganism and opposition in various forms, the apostle is particularly concerned that they should be clear about the greatness of the power of God toward all those who believe in Christ. And that is surely the one thing we all Christians need to know and to be absolutely certain of in the Christian life. Nothing is more vital than that we should be clear about the power of God that is manifested in this Christian salvation. So the Apostle writes in order to help them and us in that respect. He prays what I call the three what's to know. One, what is the hope of God's calling? Two, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And three, What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in that age, which is to come. The thing that Paul wants to emphasize above everything in the immediate context is this, that nothing less than the mighty power of God could have done this salvation. This is where Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3 links up with what he wrote about at the end of chapter 1. There, Paul has been telling them about the great power of God manifested in raising Christ from the dead and exalting him at God's right hand in the heavenlies. Immediately following where Paul is telling us about the power of God raising and exalting Christ, Paul writes, "'You, God, made alive.'" God has done something powerful for you and me in Christ because he has bought us with a price. We belong to him. We have eternal life. We have been justified. We've been liberated from the bonds that kept us in slavery. We are members of his body, the church. And nothing but God's own power could have done all this. You and I can't appreciate the height to which we have been elevated until we have a measurement of the depth from which we have come. We all start at the depths of a pit in terms of our sin and corruption. That is what Paul is saying in chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. We shall never have an adequate conception of of the greatness of this salvation. Unless we realize where we were before this mighty power took hold of us, unless we confront the reality of where we would still be if God had not intervened in our lives and rescued us. No man will ever have a true comprehension of the biblical view of redemption If he is not clear about the biblical teaching of the doctrine of sin. In this passage in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul singles out three appalling conditions that prevail about all unredeemed human beings. First, the unredeemed are all dead, second, the unredeemed are enslaved. And third, the unredeemed are all condemned because in their unredeemed state they are still under the curse of God's wrath. First condition, the unredeemed are dead. In scripture, death never means annihilation, but rather the separation of a person from the purpose or use for which he was intended, as Bible scholar H.S. Miller puts it. Scripture refers to three types of death. First, physical death. the separation of the soul from the body in 1 Corinthians 15:21 through22. Second, eternal death, separation from God throughout eternity. In second, Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. And third, spiritual death the separation of the human spirit from God. We've discussed this in the previous episode in our exposition on Ephesians 2, verse 1. Those outside of redemption are thus alienated from the life of God. The second condition, the unredeemed are enslaved. Paul is not content to simply say that we once walked in trespasses and sins. The word walk could suggest, at least to some minds, a pleasant trek to the countryside, with a leisurely freedom to absorb the beauties of our surroundings. Paul is writing to redeemed people, but he is reminding them of their former walk in trespasses and sins. Paul is saying there is no true freedom in the life of the non-Christian, but rather a fearful bondage to forces over which the unredeemed person has no control. What are these forces that enslave the person? Paul's answer, put in later ecclesiastical terminology, is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Paul refers to these three forces as directing our former pre-Christian existence and thereby enslaving us. I will address these three enslaving forces and the third condition of the unredeemed as condemned under the curse of God's wrath in future episodes. Let me close this episode by mentioning something that could be called the cult of easy religion. If you go to any store selling magazines or popular books, you will find that many will tell you how to live a happy life. We all desperately need whatever aids we can find that will enable us to live the happy life. You might find some publications of the New Atheist who call God a moral monster. But the New Atheists are not the only people calling God something uncomplimentary. The progressive church slash the emergent church, supposedly a segment of the Christian church, call God a child abuser. And you might find publications of those who strongly disagree with historic Christianity on a variety of topics, but especially on whether Jesus is the Son of God, whose work on the cross can reconcile sinful man to God. The Bible is the word of God and miracles, especially the resurrection of Jesus are the acts of God. But nowhere in any of those publications will you find anything that suggests that humans are fallen creatures and sinners by nature. That our sin separates us from God and the consequence of our sin is death. Nowhere will you find any hint that you are a sinner yourself. And if you remain unredeemed, you are condemned under the curse of God's wrath. In prosperous America, it will be hard to identify anything that makes any reference to you as a sinner. A sinner under the judgment of God. A sinner in need of salvation.
0: with Joe Mott.